So I'm shocked you actually came back to this series, if I'm just being honest. I was kind of afraid we'd have like 10 people here today uh, when I announced and introed the series, but uh, it's too late. And if you weren't here last Sunday, you're really worried that you came today, aren't you? But uh, it's too late. It's too late to leave. Uh, you can't get out now. Uh, this is a series on the seven deadly sins. Um, and some of you forgot that's what it was, but that's what it is. Seven deadly sins. This is a season of Lent in, in like church calendar world, more traditional liturgical churches. Uh, church calendar world, this is a season of Lent, which is a season of self-reflection. It's a season of confession. It's a season of repentance. And so this series kind of works in line with the, with the idea of uh, the Lenten season uh, because it deals with the, some, some really big ones that we need to, to be aware of. And let me catch those of you up who weren't with us last week and, and remind those of you who were. This list of seven deadly sins doesn't actually appear in, in the particular order in the Bible. Uh, it, it, it was created around the end of the 5th century, and then it got tweaked and reworded, and some things got combined and added and dropped. And uh, Around the, the middle of the 7th century, uh, it became the list that we still refer to today. Now, everything on the list is in the Bible, and everything on the list is considered a sin in the Bible and taught against in the Bible. Um, but the list itself came after the Bible had been, uh, had been written. And some of the reasons were just as a warning to Christians. Hey, these, not that one sin's worse than the other, but like these are ones you really got to watch out for. I'll tell you why in just a second. You really got to pay attention and monitor the degree to which these tendencies are growing uh, in your heart. They, they, were, they were formed into a list to be memorable because... A uh, few people read uh, at the beginning of what we call the Dark Ages, which is when this, this list came to be. Few people read, few people could write. Um, uh, nobody had Bibles uh, other than maybe the church had one, but there was no printing press. There was no YouVersion app that you guys have on your phone. Uh, we have like hundreds of versions of the Bible uh, on our phone right now. That, none of that was the case uh, at the beginning of the Dark Ages. And so the church... Leaders, they would try to find parts of the Bible or teachings related to the Bible and put them in memorable, short segments so that people could memorize it. And then they could keep it, have it in their heart. That's exactly what happened in the creation of uh, this list of seven deadly sins. Now, they're also called, even to this day, they're called the cardinal sins because in Latin, cardinal means the hinge of a door. And that's why we have this here. These are the pivotal sins. These, these are the sins that open the door to all of the other sins. Like these sins really, uh, they, they don't act on their own. They lead you on to greater sins that can have greater destruction and greater impact on your future, on your family, on your relationships. Uh, in church, we don't talk a lot about gateway drugs, which is probably a good thing we don't talk about gateway drugs, other than to say don't do gateway drugs. But the seven deadly sins, they're kind of the gateway drug to all the other sin, right? They open the door to more sins. And, and yes, we're using the word sin in this series because we do believe God has said yes to some things and no to some things. And he's been very clear about a lot of those. Uh, there are things that you can do that, that are in obedience to God, and there are specific things we can do that are disobedient 
to God. And the Bible refers to that as sin, whether we use that word a lot in conversation or not. Um, Last thing is that these seven deadly sins aren't actions. Like you can't go out and do these this afternoon. They are all desires. They're they're wants that come up from within us. That's why they open the door. Like there is a desire for something that I want or something that I want out of proportion from what I should be wanting it. And if I let that desire grow, fester, uh, uh, James last week said it was like a, a woman who's pregnant. Like at first you don't recognize it and then if you let it begin to grow, it's undeniable. And then if you let, if you let this sin get full grown, like come to birth... It's going to lead to a lot of destruction in your life. So these desires are on the inside. And this particular list is saying to us, look, you got to keep that door closed on these particular desires. Some desires are great and they should flourish and you should pursue them. These seven desires, you got to keep the door closed on them or they will have devastating results in, in your life. And, and desire's tricky. We, we mentioned last week, desire's tricky because when I want something, I, I can justify why I want that thing. I can rationalize why I should have that thing. It, it, it sometimes even feels normal. Like, well if, well, if I feel this, then it must be the right thing. Well, if I desire this, then that must be normal. That must be natural. That must be who I am. I should pursue this. And yet the Bible teaches us in many different ways, in many different places, that in this things, you're going to, because of sin, because of a broken, fallen nature, you're going to desire things. You're going to desire some things a lot, and you don't have the freedom to pursue those desires. For your own protection, for your own health, for your own well-being, for the well-being of, of your spiritual life and your relationship to God, to avoid all of the catastrophe that could come from pursuing that desire, you got to rein that desire in. You've got to put parameters around that desire. Now, the good news for those of us who follow Jesus is we don't do this alone. This is not like a struggle, a tug of war that we're having with temptation. The Spirit of God, the Bible teaches, is, is inside of us. Like God's Spirit who is way more powerful than we are. God's Spirit is at work inside of us to help us overcome these desires. And and as we yield to God's Spirit, as we say yes to what God desires, as, as we move towards what the Spirit desires for our life, we gain strength and power over these tendencies and these desires. Jesus agreed that sin starts on the inside. Um, It's not just my idea. I I didn't create that idea. Jesus agreed that all sin ultimately starts inside of us. And that disobedience to God is now not an outside-in work, but it's an inside-out work. It's what's going on in my heart, and if I allow it to come out, then it becomes sin. Uh, Mark is one of the four, what we call gospels. They're the stories of Jesus. There's four in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark actually wrote his gospel first. It was the first gospel to be written down. And it's a great book if you're not used to reading the Bible. Mark's a great place to start. 
But he was the first one to put down on paper, this is what happened in the life of Jesus. I was there. I saw it. I witnessed it. I've talked to people. And this is what happened. And, and very likely Matthew and Luke and John read Mark's and, and borrowed from Mark's and then added their own stories that they saw and their own perspective. But Mark was the very first one to write down the story of Jesus. And he, he tells an episode in Mark chapter 7 of Jesus teaching people. And then like so often happens, he turns and teaches just his disciples because they have questions. That's what's going to happen here. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, defile is probably another word that you didn't use in conversation this week. Jesus is using the word defile in kind of a, worse, a ceremonial worship sense. Uh, there was very much the conviction that when you went to worship, your life should be pure, your sins should be confessed, there shouldn't be disobedience between you and God. And that's what Jesus means by defile. Like the things that, that, that you disobey God, those areas where you're disobedient, Jesus is referring to those as areas that defile you. And, and Jesus' point is, it doesn't happen outside in, it happens inside out. Like things don't come into you to make you disobey. Things are already in you, and when they come out, then that's when we disobey. We, we read from Jesus' brother James last week, and James said, look, when you sin, like when you're tempted, don't blame God. Don't say, well, God, why are you tempting me? Or God, why did you put that in my life? Or why did you let those circumstances appear? J James said, no, sin happens because desires within you are given space, they're given room, you're not pulling back on them, and they grow, and then sin happens. And, and I, I would even say, like, don't blame anybody when you sin. Don't blame whoever may be tempting you, because at the end of the day, every one of us, just we make choices. We make decisions to do and not do. And absolutely, you should remove yourself from tempting situations if you have control over it. Like, get away from tempting circumstances. Get away from tempting people. But when I sin, it's not their fault. I choose to obey God or disobey. I choose to yield to God's Spirit or to move away from God's Spirit. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like, that disobedience doesn't come from the outside to the inside. Disobedience starts on the inside and then shows up on the outside. He goes on. Verse 17. After Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about his parable. You have moments with your kids and Jesus... I don't know if he hadn't had a cup of coffee yet that morning, but he's like, are you so dim-witted still? Come on, guys. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. So Jesus talks about food and drink. This is his metaphor. He said, like, when you eat, like, stuff comes from outside to inside, 
But it doesn't affect like your soul, your spirit, your mind, your decision-making capabilities. Like when you eat, you eat it, it goes to your stomach, and then eventually it gets eliminated. Like Jesus liked to get everybody on the same page, right? Like can we all agree this is the way it works? Well, what I'm saying to you is that's the way the spiritual world works too. That's the way disobedience works. It's not because something out there entered into you. Like that stuff can, you, you don't have to act on that. The problem is when desires and wants and feelings stir inside of you and you nurse them and you grow them and then they come out. He, he goes out, it goes on in verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. And then he gives a list. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So Jesus is saying what James would say later, that sin, disobedience is rooted in desire. It's rooted in me wanting something, feeling a passion, feeling a desire, feeling an urge, and then me acting on it. It's not anything else. I'm the one who makes that choice. I'm the one who disobeys. And Jesus seems to be implying, look, you need to own this. You need to own that you make decisions. You are a rational human being. And you make decisions to do or not do. That's on you. It comes from inside you. And there is, there is wonderful grace. Like there's incredible forgiveness. The Bible is very clear. Like, like God's grace covers everything and God takes our sins and puts them as far from him as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. The Bible says all of this beautiful language about how God forgives all of our sins but my concern, maybe with where we are today in, in, in contemporary Christianity, is we're in such a hurry to proclaim our forgiveness that we don't take the time to admit that we have something to be given for. Like we're, we're in such a hurry to say, oh, God forgives everything, or it wasn't that big of a deal, or everybody does it. Like we're, we're in such a hurry to proclaim that, that that's been forgiven that we don't take a moment to say, but you know what? That was wrong, and I don't want to do that again. Like, that's caused all of these ripples in my life. I don't want to make that mistake again. Yes, there is forgiveness. There is grace. Absolutely, there is. But there's a reason the Bible encourages us to confess. There's a reason. So it says, look, if, if we confess, God's faithful and just to forgive us. It's the reason the Bible says, look, you should confess sins one to another. Like, not to everybody, but like to somebody close to you that can, that can hold you accountable, that will pray for you, that will encourage you. Because there is a real need, I think, in order to experience freedom from whatever is in my past, there has to be a, a moment where I say, I made bad, a bad choice. I made the wrong decision. I let desire drive me to a place that I couldn't get out of. I didn't want to get out of, and it has cost me dearly. God, forgive me. God, wipe all that away. God, send your grace, and he does. But there has to be at least a moment of that's, I decided that. And I want to decide differently next time. Now, in making his list here, 
Jesus covers a lot, of, a lot of ground. He covers many of the seven deadly sins that we're going to cover in this series. Some of them specifically by name, same words that we're going to use. Some of them are uh, potential actions that come out of the seven deadly sins that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about two today. Uh, and then the rest of the series, we're just going to talk about uh, one Per week, I was talking to Jessica Driver um, before the first service, and, and we agree. She and I agreed that whatever weeks you miss in this series, we're just going to assume that one's a problem for you. Okay, so feel feel free to miss church. I'm I'm making a list, and and so whenever you're out, I'm just going to assume you didn't want to hear that one because that's your problem. Uh, okay, here's the two for today. That, that must not be your problem, but here's the two for today. The two are greed and envy, right? And they're kind of related, so I think we can cover both of them today. Uh, let me start off by saying one of the challenges with greed, I think, is we tend, we tend to think of greed, measure greed on a sliding scale with my experience as the fixed point. Here's what I mean. We don't think we're greedy, but the person who has a larger house than us is. Right? I don't think I'm greedy, but the person who just bought the new car that I don't have obviously is. I mean, I'm not greedy, but the, the person who keeps posting pictures of their vacation that's better than the vacation I took is, or, or they post pictures of more vacations than I'm able to, well, obviously, they're greedy. Fixed point is me, and to define greed based on a sliding scale, fixed point is me, and anybody with more than me is obviously greedy. Uh, it, it's like, uh, speaking of cars, you, you're driving down, driving down the road here in Atlanta, and you see somebody with an older, sort of beat-up car, uh, older than you're, not as nice as you're, more, more scratches, more dents. And sometimes our first thought is they're probably not real successful. You know, they probably didn't work hard. They, they probably don't have like a real strong work ethic. And then the car that passes us that's nicer than ours, our thought is they're probably really materialistic. They're probably, they're probably really greedy person. Yeah. If we're not careful, just sort of that's how we view the world is I know I'm not greedy, but everybody that has more than me is greedy. And everybody that has less than me, well, they probably just don't work as hard as I do. But here's the thing. Greed isn't defined based on my, my fixed point of circumstances. Greed really isn't even defined by how big somebody's house is or how new their car is or how many vacations they, they take. Maybe that can be some evidence. I, I, I don't know, but, but it doesn't define what makes a greedy person. Let me, let me give you some overly simplistic definitions of greed and envy coming from this idea that all of these are desires. All right, Here, Here's an overly simplistic for greed. I desire more than what I have. Overly simplistic definition of greed is when I desire more than what I have. Overly simplistic definition of envy, I desire what you have. Greed is when I desire more than I have. Envy is when I desire what you have. I said they were overly simplistic because, I mean, you could argue that there are some positives to desiring more than what you have. 
If somebody said, um, you know, I desire a better paying job so that I can care better for my family, so that we can pay some health care uh, costs, so, so that we have some bills to pay off. I desire, a, well, that, that's, that's a positive, probably, desire. Um, we say that about our kids sometimes. You know, I, I want my kids to have it better than I did. Is that right? Is that wrong? I don't know. It, it, it could be either, I guess. It could be a positive. Even as you look at what somebody else has, if you look at it from the sense of, you know, I desire to accomplish what they've accomplished. And so that means, like, I need to get my college degree, or, or I need to go through this training, or I need to work hard because they've worked hard. Uh, I need to have high integrity because they have high integrity, and that's helped them in their career. Th- those aren't bad things. I mean, so there's a sense of desiring more than what I have, desiring what somebody else has. There could be a sense where those aren't negative things. The problem is, for, for the positives of those desires, there's a really big, really dark side of desiring more than I have and desiring what others have. I mean, it's, it's something that can grow to unhealthy measures in our, in our life. Um, let me, let, me, let me give a more specific definition maybe to greed, other than just the simplistic one. Greed is when I'm not able to enjoy what I have because I want more than I have. I'm not able to take pleasure. I'm not because I think satisfaction and what is right in front of me because I think it should be more. Because I think I should have more, I should buy more, I should build more, I should own more, I should, I should get more. And therefore, I'm not able to find joy in what my life is because I'm frustrated by all the things that my life isn't. I'm not able to enjoy the things that I have in my life because I'm focused so much on the things that I don't have in my life. Think of it another way. The obsession with more... And the dissatisfaction with current reality is the greedy desire that leads to misery. Like this obsession with more, 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 and I don't have enough, and I need more, it just leads to a really miserable existence. And if left unchecked, it can lead to some very regrettable decisions in our lives. Not just the embezzling, the taking money, the skimming off the top, not, not just that sort of regrettable decision. There are parents that, that missed year, miss years of their children's life because they're driven by, I don't have enough, I don't have enough, we got to get bigger, we got to get better, we got to have more, more square footage. And, and, and they miss their kids' lives because this desire for more than I have. There are people who can't enjoy the home they come home to at the end of the day because they want another home or a bigger home. Marriages fracture and splinter and disintegrate because one or both spouses are on this train of more and more and it's not enough. Listen, plan, save, have goals, put money aside. You know, have ambition, all of that. But to think that I'm not happy now and more is going to make me happy, you're never going to satisfy that part of your heart if that's where you are. 
If you're at a place where what you have, you can't find any contentment and joy in what's right in front of you, I promise you, most of the people here would tell you, getting more is not going to solve that. Getting more square footage or a nicer, newer car or a little bit more pay or a little bit better job, it is not going to satisfy that need, that desire that you Ecclesiastes in your heart for more, 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 more. Some of us are studying Ecclesiastes on Sunday night. And Solomon circles back to this theme very often. Solomon comes back to the theme of, look, in, enjoy your life. Enjoy this, your, your spouse. Enjoy the family that you have. Enjoy the job that you get to work and the contribution you get to make to society. Enjoy what's right in front of you. And if you get more, great. Enjoy that. But view all of it, Solomon's words are, view all of it, all of it as a gift from God and not constantly striving to upgrade and bigger and more. Find satisfaction where you are. Paul in the New Testament had some really blunt language when it came to this sin. He discusses a lot of sins in this passage, but greed keeps coming back to the surface. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 5. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Like, Paul's serious. Paul is blunt. And, and I mean, if we're honest, greed is one of those sins in our culture, in Western and America, greed is one of those sins that we sometimes give a pass to. We often give a pass to. We often say, well, it's drive, it's ambition, it's, it's setting goals, it's the price of success. Like You just have to be that kind of driven person. Like we give a pass to this particular sin. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You can't have that in your heart as a follower of Jesus. And he, he goes one step further and he says, if this is who you are, like if you, don't, if you don't try to get this out of your life, like if you just are a greedy person all the time and you see no problem with that, then that's probably evidence that you don't know Jesus and you don't stand to inherit the kingdom of God because Jesus at work in us, the Holy Spirit at work in us, he's going to shine a light on this. He's going to shine a light on greed and, and desire for more in our hearts. Paul even says, you're worshiping an idol if that's you. Like stuff has become more important to you than God. Stuff has become first. Money and houses and idolater. You're desiring. You're worshiping those things. You've become an, an idolater because of your greed. I wanna, let's talk about envy. I, again, simplistic definition. I desire what you have. Here's a little bit more specific definition. The feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of others. The feeling of displeasure. It's not just that you got something. It's not just that I found out about it. It's not just you posted it on Facebook and I saw it. It's that like 
you getting that bothers me. Like it frustrates me. I feel this sense of maybe anger towards you because you got something and I can think of a million reasons why I deserve it more than you do. Like I can think of all the reasons why you shouldn't have got that and, and I should get something nice. I can't, I can't even remember the last time I got something nice in my life. And that's what definition is saying. It, it, it's this sense of displeasure that I get when somebody else gets something. This frustration that I get when somebody else has something. Because I can think of all of the reasons why they don't deserve to have it and all the reasons why I do. Or all of the reasons why this proves that they are really greedy. Here's, here, here's some tests that I recommend. Notice what happens in your heart and, and in your thinking the next time you're scrolling through Facebook and see pictures of someone's all-inclusive vacation in the Caribbean. Like what, what happens in you? We have some college students. What, what happens when somebody gets a full-time job before you do? Like you're all interviewing, you're all trying, you're jockeying for position and get, get the right job and they Somebody got the one that you wanted. She was working. We graduated from seminary. Um, I graduated from seminary. Julie was with me. She was working, paying the bills for us. Um, we, I, I was the last one of our friend group to get hired by a church. I don't know what that says about me, but I was like the last one. It's like being last at PE. Uh, okay, we'll take you. Uh, um, uh, we were, I was the last one. To get hired. And I graduated in December and like it turned January. And I, I distinctly remember because a lot of the friends that were close to us, we all ended up in the same apartment complex uh, before we, by the end of, of our, our seminary experience, before we all graduated. I, I remember standing in the parking lot of that apartment complex and like waving to friends who were driving off to their, to their full-time ministry job. And we turned around and walked back into the, to our apartment and waited. Um, now, I, I eventually got a job at the beach, so I won anyway. So, um, but, man, there's just that, uh, that tension of they have something that I, that I wanted or I felt like I deserved. When somebody gets the promotion that you were in line for, when somebody gets the position that you were hoping for, what happens? When somebody throws a bigger birthday party for their kid than you can throw f for your kid, like that's a thing now. They got all the blow-ups and the, the magician and the fire breathing, whatever. <laughs> we went Chuck E. Cheese. You know, there's just this rivalry that sometimes we have in our hearts for other people that we got to get a grip on. The world's not going to help us. The world's going to feed that. A lot of our social network, they're going to feed that because they're in it too. You and I, through the Holy Spirit, we got we to tame that. And, and I know some of our response is, well, I mean, they're posting it all over Facebook. Obviously, that proves they're greedy, right? Like they're putting their vacation pictures all over in their new house and their, and their new car. Like if they weren't greedy, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be doing that. Maybe, I, I don't know. 
Maybe that's the case. What I know is it's not really my job to straighten out greed in others. It's, it's my job to keep the door closed on my greed. Right? I, I'm not the new car police. <laughs> right? And, and Surprise, you're not either. <laughs> like you're not the square footage police. I'm not the square footage police. It's my job to keep that door to sort out the greed in everybody else's heart. It's my job to keep that door closed in my heart and in my life. Here's what I I know. I don't really know people well enough to know why they do the things they do. Maybe you think you know people well enough. I don't know. Even my closest friends, I would never assume that I know their motives for what they buy or what they do or where they vacation or what... What home? I don't know people well enough to figure out their, their motives. But there is one heart, if I'm willing, I can get absolute clarity on, and it's mine. There's one person's motives that I can know perfectly if I'm willing to, and those are my motives. And those are the ones I'm responsible for. Those are the ones that I have to restrain. Those are the ones that I have to keep closing the door when I want more and more and more. Now, how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you close that door? With each of the seven deadly sins, I, I want to give us some, what I'm going to call prescriptive virtues. These are like the other side. Like if, like if I went to the doctor and said, doctor, I'm suffering with greed. This is the prescription he could write me. Right? Take two of these, call me in the morning. Right? So, so this is the other side. If I want to combat greed and envy, what do I need to get in my life to do that? Here's just a few. To, like This isn't new and novel, but, but this, is, this will work. Gratitude. Right? Like if I need to get greed and envy out of my life, the place to start is, and what am I grateful for that I have? To tame this desire for more and more, why don't I look at what I have and just name it and be thankful for it? Like some of us grew up in, in, church, in traditional old church, Baptist church, Methodist, whatever. We used to sing that song, Count Your Many Blessings. You remember that, that hymn that we used to sing? But that's, that's pretty good stuff, right? Like I, I, I need the habit. I need the routine of saying, God, I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm going to name that and... and my kids are healthy, and we have a roof over our head, and we have vehicles that get us to work and home every single day. God, I'm thankful for those things. If you want to combat greed and envy, start there. Gratitude. Another prescriptive virtue is contentment. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4. He says that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He says, I've learned the secret. Of being content. And he said he learned it, so he, apparently Paul didn't always practice contentment. Like he had to go through some stuff and realize, I've got to get settled here. I've got to find satisfaction. And, and this is in the midst of a, of a discussion from Paul on the fact, Paul saying, look, I've had nothing. Like life has been bad for me before. And then life's been great for me. And I've learned the secret to be content in either one. 
Like wherever I find myself, I'm going to be grateful. I'm going to find satisfaction. I'm going to be content. Now, Paul prayed for his circumstances to get better. Paul asked God. Paul wanted some things to change, and some of them changed, and some of them didn't. But Paul said, whatever, whichever end I'm on, if I'm in the middle, if things change, if things don't change, I've learned finding joy in this life hinges on me finding contentment in my circumstances. A third prescriptive virtue specifically toward greed and envy, is generosity. Be a giver. I mean, learn to give. If you, want to, if you want to break the hold of hoarding stuff and needing more and holding tightly to this world, world's possessions, give some of your stuff away. Give some of your resources away. Give some of your money Away, somewhere, to someone. Give it to church. Give it to a charity. Give it to a nonprofit. Give it, give it to an individual you know is struggling. You know, could you just give something? Like we can get into details about how and when and where and how much later. But you want to break greed and envy, you got to give some stuff away. You can't keep it all for yourself and overcome these particular desires in your life. Specific virtues for Envy. I'm going to give you two. We're going to be done. And those two are kindness and celebration. Kindness and celebration. Is there somebody that it just brings you displeasure for them to get ahead? It frustrates you for them to get more. Here's what you got to do. You're not going to like me for this. An act of kindness towards that person. An act of kindness. Do something for that person. Not because they need it, because you need to break the desire of envy in your heart. Celebrate them. Something great happens to somebody other than you, celebrate that person. Somebody gets what you wanted, celebrate that person. Now, it may not be real authentic in the beginning, right? You, you might want to text it or post it on social media because you might not want them to see your face when you're doing it. Right? You, you may have to build up to person-to-person celebration. That's fine. Start somewhere. I'm so happy for you and your family. Congratulations. What a great honor. So thrilled for, for what God's done in your life. Because here, Here's what happens when we celebrate other people. They become people to us. Like they become more human to us. And maybe we become a little more human too in that process. Here's, when I'm envious of somebody, in some ways they stop being a person. Right? They become the house that makes me so mad. They become the car that they drive that I'm envious of. They become the job that I wanted or the pay scale that I think I did. They become that. When I extend kindness to them, when I celebrate good things that happen in their life, they become real human people to me that's harder to dislike. And I, I think in some ways. I become more human too when I can do that. God help us. Because we don't get a lot of help with this one in our culture. We're a culture very much driven by more and bigger and better and pricier and 
And yet you've called us to contentment and gratitude. And so help us where we struggle with this particular desire, these particular desires, to break that hold. Because at the end of the day, it's not about square footage and it's, it's not about the kind of car somebody has. It's about my heart and my desires. And through the restraint of your Holy Spirit, teach me contentment and gratitude. Teach me generosity. Teach me to show kindness and to celebrate that other person so that I really see them as a person. In Jesus' name, amen.